Hello, everyone. This is my third sermon that I'm giving ever at Quicksilver Church, ever and also at Quicksilver Church. The first one I did when we were out in the park before we were meeting in a building, and I hated that one because um, I did not really, I thought my delivery was terrible and really stiff, but also it was just a lot, it was very scholarship heavy, which is what connects with me, but I realize isn't really the appropriate, appropriate for a sermon. The second one was on dating a couple months ago, and uh, I liked my delivery better, but the content I was still not super thrilled with, so I'm hoping that I could nail both this time. Um, thanks. Um, after both of those, I got, especially after the second one, uh, got a lot of feedback saying it was helpful, and I also got a lot of feedback saying what I could have done a little bit better. I appreciate that that was constructive, and I really encourage you to do that. I think one thing that I pride myself on is that I don't take constructive criticism personally, and I really enjoy the conversation. So if what I say up here today is helpful to you and you like it, I would love to talk about it. And if it is, you know, if you have constructive criticism, I'd also love to talk about it because I just think that that it helps build relationship after the sermon instead of just leaving it here. Um, <clears throat> And then when Fred, when I learned that we were doing a Jonah sermon series, Jonah is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it's also one of Grant's, and that's part of why we are both preaching. So I'm doing today, and then Grant's doing two weeks from today. Um, I can relate to Jonah in some ways because I know what drowning feels like. So in the summer of 2015, I would say I came pretty close to drowning in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, spare you the details, but... That day I learned what a riptide was and uh, hadn't known before and couldn't get back to land and I'm already not a good swimmer. Um, so an old dude on a surfboard eventually came and got me. I was treading water for probably like half an hour. And then an old dude on a surfboard came and got me. And I remember I got on the surfboard and he started explaining to me what a riptide was. And I was like, can we just get back to shore? You can tell me on shore. So I got back to shore on the surfboard and on shore. I was vomiting up a bunch of water. Went to the ER to make sure that there was no water left in my lungs. But I was fine, and I was at a 4th of July party by that night. Um, I, I don't have an amazing memory of random days in my life, but I remember this super clearly. Um, I remember what it was like to shout for help and not be heard because I was too far. I remember what it was like to try to wave my arms, but my body had sort of this prefrontal cortex like, primal response that wouldn't let me put my arms up because if I put my arms up then I would sink my head below water and my body wouldn't wouldn't do it I remember that being a crazy feeling and then I remember the realization one of the only times in my life where I had the realization that I might die soon and um and I remember the laser focus that came from that it wasn't panic it was just focus and like how am I going to tread water until somebody re remembers that I can't swim <laughs> I was there with friends um, so, so that connection with Jonah is obvious because he gets thrown into the ocean far away from land. Um, but one of the key themes of Jonah is how individuals and nations can be put in impossible situations, can go through a lot of pain, can, can have near death or even death experiences. And then, uh, God can intervene in miraculous and unexpected ways. Um, so as we start, I invite you to be thinking about a time um, in your life where you have felt or feel 
maybe you're currently in one, uh, physically, emotionally, or spiritually crushed in permanent ways that you don't think you can come back from. So Jonah has two um, important distinct meanings, depending on who's reading it. There's what the Israelites would have read when they, um, or what they would have gotten out of the book when they read it, and then there's what we um, read from it, given that we have the hindsight of Jesus. And with those two perspectives, I want to answer two questions today. Um, Who or what does Jonah represent? And then who or what does the fish represent? So before we do that, we're going to read the passage. Um, And we're going to start in Jonah 1.17. Interestingly enough, that's where um, Hebrew and English uh, verse splits are different. And 1.17 is where the... uh, is it actually where chapter 2 starts in the Hebrew? And I think that makes more sense, so we'll start there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. So the first thing I want to mention here is that Israelites primarily understood God's means of creation, destruction, and salvation as water. And that starts way back in Genesis 1. Um, God didn't create water. It says that the water was already there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And it talks later how he, in Genesis 1, how he separated water that we can see from water that's above. We can think of that as like clouds or rain. And then he also pulled back the water below to create land. And so God's means of creation was controlling water, showing dominance over water, pulling back the chaos. Um, You know, making something that was without form and void because it was dominated by water have form. So um, that, that theme continues to play out in Israel's story at a national level. So, um, God uses water to create the earth and then uses water to destroy it with the flood. He pulls back the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to escape and then lets the sea go back to crush Israel's enemies. He uses water to, uh, he enables water to come out of a rock when Moses struck it in the desert to give water to the people. And then in Jonah, um, we see a raging storm. We see a raging ocean. And I think the people of Israel would have immediately thought of God's creative and destructive powers. So chaotic waters represent God unleashing that which he held back to create the world in the first place. 
And in Jonah 1, when they ask who he worships, he says, I worship, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this goes back to um, what uh, Fred says all the time, your name represents your character, works, and reputation. So he t- he, we have, in that verse, we have Jonah's God's name, Yahweh, his reputation as the God of heaven, and his works of creation and destruction. Uh, and Israel would have understood that to be via water. So Jonah being thrown into the ocean is a figurative uh, destruction of that which is. It's an undoing of that which has been done. <clears throat> the second thing I want to point out is that poet, uh, poet Jonah has been on a poetic journey. So what I mean by that is not only that he has been on a journey that has poetic outcomes, you know, you have a prophet, the, vo- the mouthpiece of God running from God, but it's also written with poetic style. And uh, one short example of this is that the Hebrew has gendered nouns for fish. Most languages do not, but Hebrew does. And uh, in Jonah 2.1, when it says that Jonah prayed from within the fish, it actually switches the fish's gender from male to female. Now, I don't think that the fish actually had a sex change. I think it's supposed to be funny because he's in the fish, so the fish is now pregnant. Um, now, you lose that in the Hebrew, but I think that's just part of what it's trying to do. It's trying to, do, it's trying to describe things in a poetic fashion. Um, so Jonah has been on a physical journey away, what he thinks is away from God, so from the land of Israel towards Tarshish, away from Nineveh, um, but he's also been on a poetic journey downward. So I remember at the very beginning of uh, the series when Fred talked about how when there's a call to arise and get up, prophets obey. Um, the Lord, you know, a lot of the minor prophets start with, and the word of the Lord came to X, and then X got up and went and did said thing. But um, when God said, Jonah, arise and bring this word to Nineveh, he left. And so when he was supposed to go up, he instead started going down. Um, so as it describes his journey, it describes downward imagery. So in, one, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says he goes down to Joppa, he goes down to get on the boat. In verse 5, he goes down below the inner part of the ship. Uh, and then he lays down. He falls into a deep sleep. The sailors throw him down into the water. And then he goes down, he starts sinking, and he goes down into the water. And that's not the end of the movement, but that's just what we've seen so far, is that as he's been running from God, he has been moving physically away from Nineveh, but almost spiritually down as he's trying to get away from God. If God is up there, you go down to get away from him. Um, So he's literally and physically moving, but he's figuratively and spiritually descending. Um, And he's going to Tarshish, and if you look on a map, I actually meant to put a map in the slides, but I didn't do that. Tarshish is very far from Nineveh. It's probably about as far as he could have tried to go from Israel in in his known world at the time. Um, And what we'll see in a bit is that he also goes as far as he could from God. Um, so he has a spiritual destination as well as a physical destination down away from God. So in, in his prayer in chapter two, um, if you've seen veggie tales, you might think that what happens is he gets thrown overboard. He immediately gets swallowed by a fish. He sings songs with angels and then he gets spit up on the dry land. And that really frames the fish as punishment. Um, of course, if you believed everything you saw as VeggieTales, you might also think he was a talking asparagus. Um, but the truth of the matter is a little bit more complex and a little bit more brutal. Jonah is not a children's story. It's satire and it's supposed to be funny, but it's, um, 
it wasn't just like a children's story that maybe VeggieTales makes it out to be with a big fish and sort of the fantastical elements there. I cannot believe how many blogs I read this week trying to guess what the fish is. People like trying to figure out like, okay, it's this thing that was extinct, it's this genus and this species, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, in the same way that it, I don't think it actually had a sex change, I also don't think that it actually matters. Maybe it was a whale, maybe it was a fish, who knows. But the fact that a lot of people focus on, uh, on what kind of fish it is, I just thought that was funny. Okay, so the first uh, verse of the poem, uh, verse two, is a, it's an executive summary of the whole thing. He explains an overview of what happens, and then starting in 2-3, he goes back to explain uh, and go into detail. And we learn that he doesn't get swallowed right away after he gets thrown overboard. So starting in verse three, he says that uh, he continues his downward motion. He says that God cast him into the deep. Now we know from the text in chapter one that it was the sailors who cast him into the deep. But he says that it was God who did it. And I think this is important for a couple reasons. I, first, he recognizes that the storm is from God. Um, he recognizes that ultimately God sent this thing. God is in control of Jonah's destiny. He tried to run from it, but he's now starting to realize that he was actually not in control of his destiny at all. And he knows that God is the God of the storm. And I think maybe that's why he was able to sleep so soundly in the, in the hole of the ship. Um, cause he, I wonder if Jonah even just saw it coming. Like, did he actually think he could get away? It doesn't say, but I, I wonder if he even thought that he could get away. Um, and God could have saved him at any point. Um, and I think that's the other thing that Jonah realizes. Not only is God in control of the raging oceans, but God could have saved him. You know, the point at which he said, I'll sacrifice myself, throw me overboard. That's when God could have said, okay, you're, you're good now. Or when he was actually thrown overboard and he was in the water, that's when God could have said, okay, you're good now. But he didn't. And uh, so we see that God actually allows Jonah to go under the water. So the, the passage continues. He goes down into the deep. It says that seaweed wraps around his head. And in verse 6, he gets to the ocean floor, to the roots of the mountains. And he went down to the land whose bars closed on him forever. Um, this poem is blurring the lines between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, we see like very physical descriptions of what, ha what happens about he goes under the water, uh, seaweed wraps around his head. That's a weird detail to add. He gets down to the ocean floor and then something permanent happens. He says, whose bars closed on him forever. Um, so there's this physical imagery, but it's also the continuation of the down imagery. So now he's as low as he can get in the world. He's not only as low as he can get like on a boat, but now he's below sea level, drowning. He's hit the bottom of the ocean. Um, Jonah, a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, has tried to run from the presence of God. But God is present. In, he created creation, and he is present in all of creation. And Jonah even says as much when he tells the soldiers, or the, the sailors, who the God is that he worships, the God who created the sea and the dry land. So when you're trying to get out of creation, how do you get away? And the only way is to die. So in this, in this prayer, Jonah describes being spiritually and physically undone, and he dies. And I think there are several indications of that fact. He doesn't get swallowed by the fish right away. He drowns. He dies. 
and then God restores his life to his body. So first, like we discussed, water was understood as a means of destruction, especially a raging sea in a storm. Uh, Second, Jonah is thrown overboard specifically as a sacrifice. Um, Third, Jonah himself says that he was in Sheol, which was the Israelite conception of the afterlife where you go when you die. It says that he cried out from Sheol. Um, Fourth, in Jonah 2.6, he says that he's stuck behind bars or gates with some sort of permanent status. And Sheol would have been understood to have gates. Um, And Sheol was also understood to be below the earth. So heaven was up there and Sheol was down there. So he's already gotten to the lowest part of the land. The way to go even lower is to go to Sheol. It was understood to be physically under the earth. So it's a natural transition from the lowest part of the ocean to continue going downward from life into death, but also physically and spiritually lower. And fifth, in 2.6, he says that God brings his life up out of the pit, with the pit being uh, a common euphemism for, the death, for death or, or Sheol. Um, and I want to pause here to ask, have you ever felt like you were drowning? Have you ever felt like you took a blow so significant that you couldn't come back from it, that life was no longer worth living? Um, and I've been there. I remember, obviously, uh, almost drowning physically, but I also remember the lowest mental and spiritual point in my life, um, feeling like I was never going to receive contentment I wanted, being in a job that I hated. Uh, After my grad degree, I um, applied to a bunch of jobs in the Bay Area, and the only job that I got was one outside the Bay Area, so I had to leave this place that I wanted to live. Um, I felt like I was the blame for a four-year relationship that I had ended, and I thought that... um, you know, in that part of my life, contentment would never come. I was the lowest uh, mentally and probably spiritually in terms of how close I felt to God. And on top of all that, every time I commuted, I had to look around the suburbs that I lived in and realize that I lived in Ohio. And that was probably the worst part. Sorry for anyone who's from Ohio. I just did not like living there. All right. So what's the course of events? Um, Jonah's thrown overboard. He starts sinking. On his way down, seaweed wraps around his head. He gets to the bottom of the ocean, and he dies. From Sheol, he prays to God, and God restores his life to his body, and then, and then sends a fish to swallow him up. From within the fish, that's why we're seeing Jonah praise God, because the fish is not punishment, it's salvation. It's bringing his body up from death, up from the ocean floor, back onto dry land. Um, So Jonah prays to God from the belly of the fish, which is most of chapter two, and then the fish spits him up onto dry land. All right, two more things I want to point up about the text. So first of all, in Jonah 2.10, Yahweh brings uh, Jonah up on the dry land. And so when he brings his life out of the pit, uh, that is the beginning of Jonah's upward journey. Um, It's the end of his downward momentum. And then the fish vomits him up onto dry land, Uh, which finalizes Jonah's salvation, not only by restoring his life to his body, not only by taking him out of the water, but spitting him back onto salvation, which is dry land, that which God created to hold back watery chaos. Um, And then the other thing is, in Jonah 2.9, when he talks about, can we just put that on the screen? Oh. So he goes through the exact same steps as the sailors. So um, if you look back at Jonah 1, 14 through 16, the sailors call out to Yahweh, they offer sacrifices, and they make vows. 
But in Jonah 2.9, it says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, so he's calling out to God, will sacrifice to you what I, I have vowed I will pay. So pagans were able to see the storm and recognize that they should turn and obey God. Jonah had to die before he would do that. And this is supposed to be ironic. This is even supposed to be a little funny that pagans who don't have a temple to make sacrifices in, they make sacrifices on the deck of a ship. That's a big no-no, but Jonah, the, the author doesn't call that out as a no-no. Um, he's calling out that even pagans would turn to make sacrifices to God to save themselves, and Jonah would not. All right, so you might read the, the verses here of Jonah's prayer, and you might think to yourself that some of these words and phrases sound familiar. And you'd be right. Every single one of these verses in his prayer comes from one of the Psalms, almost word for word. Israel's national words are in Jonah's mouth, not only because Jonah was a prophet who recited Psalms, but also to make clear the connection between Jonah and the nation of Israel. So I've got this comparison if you want to look it up. Basically, this is where each verse of Jonah chapter 2 comes from, one of the Psalms, and it's almost word for word. So if we get back to our original two questions, who is Jonah and who is the fish? Um, I want to propose that Jonah is an illustration of Israel's moral and spiritual downfall and their eventual exile to Babylon. So Israelites would have been able to relate their story, their national story to Jonah's story. So they started with a call. Abraham was called to bless others and to be blessed by God. And from the moment that they left Egypt, when God saved them, uh, out of Egypt, they started to disobey. Before they were even to the promised land, they were complaining. And all the way up to the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, who um, was so evil that God let allowed Babylon to conquer them. Um, from beginning to end, from Egypt to Zedekiah, there's complete disobedience along the way. And sometimes they would come back, but Israel was on a downward trajectory their whole time. Um, it took, you know, we, we saw in Genesis all the dysfunction that was in the founding father's family. We saw coming out of Egypt um, how they were whining and had to wander in the desert. When they finally got the promised land, they disobeyed and didn't do everything that they were supposed to. They had judges, but judges repeats this passage four times, and there was no king in the land, and everyone did as they pleased. And so then, maybe, they, maybe if they get a king, things will get better, and it didn't. Kings continued to disobey, even though uh, Solomon and David were pretty good. It went downhill from there. The country split. It, the northern kingdom was eventually dominated. And finally, Zedekiah was a bad king of Judah. And God was like, that's it. And the Babylonians came and were a punishment. And Israel was exiled from their own land. And that is destruction. That is being shut out of creation forever. Exile from their land and the destruction of the temple in 586 BC should have been the end of Israel. But it wasn't. It wasn't the end of Israel. And dying and drowning was not the end of Jonah. Jonah had an unlikely salvation of being swallowed by a fish. And in every, any other circumstance, if the last verse of chapter 1, 117, is he got swallowed by a fish, that's not good news right? That's, you're about to be digested, and that's the end of your life, and you're pro it's probably going to be pretty painful. Um, but that's not what happened here. Uh, imagine that you're Jonah, and you have some sort of consciousness in Sheol, and God sends your uh, 
your uh, consciousness and your, and your soul back to your body, and you're excited because you drowned and now you don't have to be dead anymore, and then you're inside a fish. And it's like, oh, I'm just here to die again? That's, uh, why did you send me back at all? But he realizes that this is a means of salvation, not destruction. Um, so what's Israel's equivalent to the fish? That thing that would in any other circumstances be destruction, but in the case of Israel ended up being salvation. Um, well, a couple generations after the Babylonians conquered Israel and exiled them, um, an even bigger empire conquered the Babylonians, and that was the Persians led by Cyrus the Great. And after that conquering, the Persians let Israel go back to their land. So the Babylonians conquered Israel, exiled them, basically took them as slaves, took their best people, like sort of the, you know, the class with like Daniel, right? We read about Daniel being in Babylon. They get conquered by the Persians, and then the Persians allow this vassal nation of Israel to go back and rebuild their wall. A means of destruction, a bigger empire, an empire that had already conquered three other empires, was used by God as a means of salvation. This chapter is Jonah playing out Israel's national epic. They had a mission, they ran from it, they were punished as a result, but then they were brought back from the dead by an unlikely savior. And this concept of unlikely salvation leads us into our last section, uh, the unlikely salvation of God becoming human and becoming our unlikely salvation. So Jesus talks specifically about Jonah in the New Testament. Uh, he brings up Jonah on two separate occasions, um, in the book, twice in the book of Matthew and, and once in Luke. And we'll read one from Matthew because the second one's just a short summary and then one from Luke. And then in each one, Jesus is speaking to slightly different audiences, and thus we get slightly different Jesus-Jonah connections. So first is Matthew, chapter 12, verse uh, 38 to 41. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. All right, so here we see Jesus is speaking to scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite, who are usually opposed to Jesus' message. And what's the sign? The sign is that as Jonah was, risen, was taken back from the dead, so Jesus will rise from the dead. As there was unlikely salvation for Jonah, there will be unlikely salvation for the Son of Man in being brought back from death. Uh, and Jonah is Jesus. Uh, specifically, it says in this, in this uh, passage in verse 40, uh, the heart of the earth, which is where Sheol was believed to be. Um, and he goes on to mention Nineveh, which is part of uh, Jonah's story. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a consciousness here that Jesus is going to go somewhere else. He's going to descend physically, but he's going to come back. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to die and descend spiritually, but he's going to come back. The heart of the earth would have been understood to be, again, where Sheol was. Um, and so Jonah and Jesus went to the same place and came back from that place. Um, and I, can we pull up the John passage really quick? So I just think this is interesting as well. Um, this is, again, the religious elite talking about Jesus. Uh, when they heard these words, some of the people said, 
this is really the prophet, this is, or this is really the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a, dimi- a division among the people over him. And then a little later on, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Uh, so there was a belief that no prophets have ever risen from Galilee, but there is one who's from Galilee, as we learn in 2 Kings, that passage that Fred read in his first sermon, Jonah's from Galilee. And so Matthew is talking about how uh, the, you know, they, the only sign of Jonah that they'll get is being is uh, Jesus coming back from the dead, and he says so cryptically. And they're saying, here in another passage, they're saying, Jesus can't be a prophet. He's from Galilee. There aren't any prophets from Galilee, but Jonah's from Galilee. They had forgotten that part of Jonah. And I just think, again, that's kind of poetic. Um, so there's a second way uh, that Jesus and jo- Well, I guess a quick pause there. Jonah is what's considered a a type of Jesus, which is um, sort of a, a theological paradigm in which people in the Old Testament, people or things in the Old Testament are representations of Jesus. Um, we're not going to get too much into that, but when I say Jonah represents Jesus, not that they're the same. Jesus ends up being a better Jonah, as we'll see in the second passage. Um, so this time he's talking to a crowd that is favorable to him in chapter Luke. He has just cast out a demon. The crowd is saying nice things about him. Um, and then he says this in, in Luke. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so, the son of man, so will the son of man be to this generation. Okay, so the first sign of Jonah was, um, you know, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. This time, the sign of Jonah is, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. So, um, so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this crowd is favorable to him. He's doing cool miracles in front of them. And he says that as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be to this generation. The sign of Jonah to Nineveh was he was talking to Gentiles. And Jonah was one of the first prophets who was speaking specifically with a mission to talk to those who were outside of the Abrahamic family, who were outside the fold. Jonah is the beginning of Israel starting to recognize its purpose of being a blessing to all people, not just to themselves, and recognizing how their disobedience has prevented that from happening. Um... And Jesus is saying, the stuff that you're seeing that you really like, I'm casting out demons and I bring a message of salvation. Uh, this isn't just for you. It's for everyone. I'm not just king of the Jews. I'm here for everyone. I'm here to bring salvation to everyone. And in this sense, he's saying that Jesus, he's calling himself a better Jonah. Um, he didn't die because of his refusal to obey, but because of his commitment to obedience. He didn't die to avoid bringing good news to Gentiles, like Jonah, who would rather die, he would rather drown than bring good news to Gentiles, but he died so that he could. He, he died to bring us that message. Okay, so there's one more connection to make to Jonah, and that's us. Um, at various times in our lives, oops, at various times in our lives, all of us uh, has been or will be Jonah. 
And the sharing question today is, how do you relate to Jonah? And we could relate to this passage in two primary ways. And as I finish, I encourage you to engage with these questions and think about what you could share during the sharing time. So the first is, can you see aspects of yourself in Jonah? Is there some way that you feel like you run from God in what he wants from you? Is it how you spend your money, how you spend your time, uh, caring for people that you don't want to care for um, or, that you, or that treat you poorly? Or maybe uh, it's something that has happened to you that wasn't even your fault, that you can't really tie back like, oh man, I'm misusing my money or I'm uh, not treating people well, but just something happened to you that it feels like the end. It feels like something that you cannot come back from, uh, something permanently damaging. Um, and maybe you're in that time right now. And if this is you, I encourage you to share so that others in similar situations can know that they're not alone. But this feeling of being crushed and of having something happen to you that can't be undone is one way that we can relate to Jonah. And the second is, have you ever experienced an unlikely rescue? For me, it was an old guy on a surfboard. Um, but can you think of a time in your life where something happened to you that was a form of rescue? And you probably didn't realize it until afterwards, uh, till you had hindsight. Something that could have been or should have been a terrible consequence, uh, like a fish digesting you, um, that ended up being something that was for your benefit, that ended up having a bright side that you didn't see. And if this is you, I encourage you to share to give hope to others that just as God worked in your life, uh, he can do that for them. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is our unlikely salvation. Aspects of Jesus can be found in Jonah as somebody who brings um, good news to everyone and who, um, you know, as, as opposed to Jonah, who is only obedient after a death experience, uh, jo Jesus is obedient even to a death experience. Um, but we can also find it in the fish as unlikely salvation. That which should have been the end, the death of the Savior, ended up being salvation. I think the story of Jonah is that is telling us that God has control over pain and death. Um, God could have saved Jonah right before he was thrown overboard. He could have saved him when he was drowning, but he didn't. He waited for Jonah to die. He waited for Jonah to call out to him and then saved him. And then just didn't teleport him onto dry land, but used something that, again, should have been the end to bring him up to dry land. And he was in there for three days and three nights. That's a long time to be inside a fish. And he didn't die. And I think that's the unlikely salvation that Jonah had, and Jesus is ours. Um, God used pain to shape Jonah. He used it to shape the forefathers, like we saw in our Genesis series. And he used it to shape Job and our understanding of God in the book of Job. That which could be a tool of the enemy, God turns into a tool for spiritual formation. And pain is part of being human. It's not unique to Christians, but what is unique to Christians is the hope that it's for something, that it has purpose, and that God can use that which seems like it's for evil for good, to change us. Uh, he offers restoration today for anyone who feels like they can't recover from crushing experiences, disobedience, wandering, and purposelessness. He let Jonah drown, but he brought him back. He let Israel be exiled, but he brought them back. Jesus came, and he died, and he came back. And what better way is there to defeat pain than to use it for a higher calling, 
other than just the meaninglessness of pain itself. Uh, to make it subservient to a greater purpose. When God brings us back from those experiences, whether it's a salvation experience or whether it's something that you see in hindsight 10 years later, a way that God worked in your life, uh, when God brings us back and we realize that it was him who brought us back, things are different. Things change. And that is what the benefit of Jesus is. When we get brought back, we realize that there was purpose to it. And we can see that. And God gives us a usefulness for our pain. And this is why we talk about death and resurrection as Christians. The story of Jonah, of Israel, of the Bible overall, and of Jesus is that God uses pain and death to bring about change in individuals, in nations, in people groups, and the entire world. He makes his good purpose happen, not in spite of pain, but using pain. And in some cases, using death, like, like, Jis- Jisrael. like Israel, Jonah, and Jesus. Um, so this is what Jesus offers us today. He offers not only rescue, but a change so significant, so unlikely, and so complete that it will inspire you to share the good news, even with your worst enemy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for anyone who has felt crushed and hasn't seen the purpose of it, or who feels like they're currently being crushed, like they're drowning and like you're not there. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that they would feel like they have somebody here to relate to in the sharing time. And I pray that Jonah and your death and resurrection would be hope that when they feel like they are at the end, they are at a permanent end or a permanent change for the negative, that you can bring them back from the brink and that that can change them forever. In the name I pray, amen.